Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kepler and I've got uh, Becky Ferreira. Hi. And Mason Peck. Hi, Jason. And uh, we're coming up here on the 60th anniversary of NASA. Um, And we have a very special guest. Uh, Mason Peck was the chief technologist of NASA from 2011 to 2013. Um, He's currently an aerospace engineering and systems engineering professor at Cornell University. And he's also been a consultant uh, for Johns Hopkins, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, SpaceX, and a few others. Um, I know that there's probably more to it than that, but uh, is that a is that a fair, quick rundown? That's all true. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so I, I don't know where we want to start this. I think Becky, you should probably drive here, but um, yeah, sure. We are coming up on 60 years of NASA. I guess, like, what's the, what's the state of NASA? right now. Do you think that's a good place to start? Yeah, sure. Um, And uh, also, I just wanted to ask uh, Mason, too, if you could give a little bit of background on what the Office of Chief Technology, I'm I'm probably getting the lingo wrong because you just gave me the distinction, but uh, uh, what does that office do and is responsible for? Sure. The Office of the Chief Technologist at NASA is where the chief technologist uh, has a a small group of folks and a small budget with which uh, we can advise the NASA administrator on matters of technology relevant to NASA. So specifically, how should NASA spend its scant technology dollars to make science and exploration possible? Uh, Also, uh, in our office is the, or I guess was, I'm not there anymore, but when there's an office of the chief technologist, uh, the chief technologist uh, is the advocate for technology at NASA, which is to say within NASA, being sure that uh, when we undertake technology projects, we do it in the right mm-hmm. way, uh, with the right balance, uh, and also outside of the agency. So that means talking to Congress about things that matter, trying to convey the relevance of NASA's technology investments to the general public. Uh, you've probably heard of NASA spin-offs, mm-hmm. that idea. Incidentally, Tang is not one of them. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing we're talking about, right? It's the right. commercial products or maybe uh, industrial processes, whatever they may be that NASA has developed with taxpayer money that actually go back then Mm -hmm. to become uh, benefits to the U.S. taxpayer through uh, industry, through um, other other forms of economic activity. It's actually one of those stories that's great to tell because it turns out there's a factor of two to seven uh, increase in the money that, let's say, you as a taxpayer have spent on NASA and that NASA then can turn around and give to uh, U.S. industry. So the 
it's it's one of these investments which I wish I could find that kind of investment for my own personal financial life. But uh, NASA represents that for the U.S. We get many times more return on that uh, technology investment. So anyway, the uh, OCT, the office of the chief technologist, tries to tell that story and make sure that story can keep being told. Absolutely. Well, um, also to just jump off of uh, Jason's point there about the state of NASA right now, uh, that seems like it dovetails really nicely because so much of the 21st century conversation about NASA has been um, about these commercial partnerships and, and sort of ways that NASA is evolving, diversifying, and supporting other spheres beyond the federal public sphere. So um, I just wanted to get into that and, and talk a little bit about how you see, I mean, it's a very broad question, of course, but how you see um, the commercial partnerships that NASA is building uh, playing out and if there's a role for purely public space uh, projects that only NASA would do for, for the American public and for the taxpayer and then compared to this very boisterous and, you know, exciting new sphere of, of new space. Yeah, that's a great question because uh, in my opinion, at least in the opinion of many people, uh, the commercial side of space science, space exploration, space uh, industry, uh, that's what distinguishes this century from the previous century. Mm. You know, if you think of the 20th century as the dawn of the space age, let's say, there's other things that happened then, right? But mm-hmm. <laughs> among other things, uh, we went to the moon for the first time, we explored space for the first time. In the 21st century, I think it's uh, that is growing up in the sense that uh, government will still have a role and always, in my opinion, should have a role in making sure that our exploration in science and other undertakings in space are successful. At the same time, we are now seeing self-sustaining commercial space enterprises. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even back in the 80s and 90s, there were successful uh, commercial satellite companies, uh, Hughes, which became Boeing, and Lockheed Martin, uh, Space Systems Laurel. These are examples from back in those days. They made satellites, right? They made commercial communications satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, uh, also, uh, lots of geolocation services using GPS, for example, have become a good commercial bet. But what we're looking at now is a completely different story. Uh, things like asteroid mining or maybe space tourism, uh, travel from uh, one point on the globe to another through space, you know, through suborbital flights. And there's a variety of other commercial activities that are going on. One of the more exciting ones will be Internet of Things in space, or at least a large number of satellites that can communicate uh, to everywhere on the Earth and provide Internet globally. There's a lot of concepts for that. So these are all uh, ways in which space is maturing, I would argue. Uh, What NASA looks like in this context is even more exciting. Mm -hmm. As I said, there should always be a NASA for a variety of reasons, and NASA's role is to show us the way. Mm. Uh, They've shown us the way to low Earth orbit and beyond. Uh, NASA, though, for the most part, is getting out of the low Earth orbit business. Uh, It may be that in the next decades, we see commercial uh, activity in low Earth orbit, by which I mean within a few hundred miles of the surface of the Earth. Um, we see more of that than we see uh, NASA science and NASA exploration. You know, with the space shuttle, the uh, International Space Station, those are examples of space systems that live in low Earth orbit. And for most of our lives, that's what we think of when we think of human space. It was maybe our parents or grandparents' generation to think of uh, to think of astronauts as people who go to the moon or maybe even to Mars someday. But that's also in our future. So we're going to back to the moon. NASA will lead us there and going back to Mars. Or not back to Mars, going to Mars with humans. Uh, back to the Mars in the sense that we've been sending robots there. So, uh, again, the future for NASA looks very bright because NASA is able to leverage uh, these commercial activities in space. Uh, components, services, uh, methods for flying in space, even the experience of potentially commercial astronauts that can make NASA's missions more successful. 
thanks to the fact that the commercial world has tried them out and have made them probably more robust mm -hmm. than the you know one-off or uh, occasional uh, kind of uh, NASA mission that we think of. So NASA in the future is more of the pathfinder to, to the next level where and the, the commercial space sphere can kind of occupy the space that NASA has pioneered in that way? I think NASA has always been the pathfinder. I think it will continue to be the pathfinder. Right. For example, right now there is no commercial motivation to explore deep space, but mm. explore, let's say, beyond the orbit of Mars. It seems very unlikely that humans will uh, visit there in the foreseeable future. Uh, certainly not Jupiter, which was the prediction of 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was That's not in the cards in the near future. Uh, so, you know, what's the commercial motivation to go out there? There probably isn't one. Hmm. And yet there's so much to learn about uh, the nature of other planets, the solar system, the cosmos in general, that we should be looking at that as a species, certainly. And I would say as a country, as the U.S., we should be asking these questions and answering them. So NASA will continue to ask and answer those kinds of questions. It's those questions that don't make sense necessarily from a commercial perspective that I think NASA is going to be uh, addressing. So that, that will always be true, though. Uh, there was not, for a long time, much money to be made in space, but that's changing. So now uh, now that low Earth orbit has been opened up to commercial enterprise, well, NASA is moving away, moving to uh, other parts of the solar system. So what do you think in terms of the fact that, um, you know, innovations in the commercial sphere are kind of outpacing government regulation and oversight and things like that? Like, this just seems to be a, a huge explosion of uh, private activity that... Uh, that is redefining space much faster than like a bureaucratic uh, uh, structure can really keep up with them. Well, two things. I think there's good and bad. The good, the good side of this is that because the commercial world has a motivation to invest in technology to make space more successful, that can spin in as opposed to spin off, right? <laughs> that can right. spin into NASA in a way that helps NASA be more successful. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of examples of small satellites. Some are called CubeSats, the size of a, a softball maybe, right? really small spacecraft that even high school students can build these days, but only because there is now a set of commercial components available to make space possible for these casual satellite building projects. Uh, but when NASA can leverage that kind of stuff, it can do science much less expensively, more reliably, and that's all good across the board. Now, the bad side, I suppose, is what you were suggesting, which is uh, there is probably a regulatory vacuum around some of what could happen or will be happening in space. For instance, there are constellations or formations of satellites planned with thousands of individual small satellites, which could lead to orbital debris. It could lead to other issues. Um, that needs to get sorted out. But I don't think that's a bad problem to have. I mean, it's exciting mm -hmm. to think that there's so much use of space, so much uh, enthusiasm for going to space and, and uh, making a buck in space, uh, that uh, we have that kind of problem. It would be sad to learn that we're backing away from orbit, from exploration. And that's definitely not happening. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, think, um, do you think that there's a worry that, or we should be worried about space becoming a free-for-all just in terms of, uh, you know, we had the space treaty from, I believe, the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. 1967. And uh, the U.S., yeah, the U.S. Congress has taken steps in the last few years to distance America from that treaty and to open up space to commercial interests. Um, and you sort of do have this very... Uh, you know, international cooperation, which I think we'll talk more about later and with regard to the ISS. But I'm just curious, um, do we need to work with our international partners, uh, especially when we're talking about the commercial exploitation of space and the resources out there? Well, first of all, uh, there's a lot to say about this. this is the area they call space law, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, as Becky pointed out, there's this 1967 space treaty, uh, which establishes the rules according to which we uh, 
operate in space. We're fortunate that this happened when it did during the uh, Kennedy and Johnson administrations, that they were focused very much on the peaceful uses of outer space. Of course, at that time, it wasn't particularly feasible to put a lot of weapons in space, and now the feasibility is there. Uh, the question is whether we're going to back away from those agreements, and I, I hope not personally. But I would offer that uh, space has always been an international activity. You're absolutely right that there are uh, actors now. It's, uh, I'll, I guess I'll point my finger at the Chinese government, which about 10 years ago set off a, an explosion in space, experimenting with an uh, arguably offensive weapon capability that increased the amount of space debris hugely. That was, uh, again, in my opinion, very irresponsible and, and has increased the amount of orbital debris in a, in a dangerous way. But um, generally speaking, uh, nations seem to cooperate well in space. There's something that still lingers maybe from those old 1950s and 1960s days where we think of space as bigger than just the boundaries, uh, the borders of countries on the earth. So I think there is reason for optimism. Uh, science in general, but space science in particular, seems to bring people together, uh, people of different nations. I hope that can continue. I would offer that uh, the the interest that some countries have in privatizing space for themselves uh, does go against those treaties. I don't think that's exactly what's going on in the U.S. Um, there, you know, you could you could look at the uh, recent legislation that enables uh, people to take bits of asteroids. That's a little different, in my opinion, and, and also in the law, I think, from what's precluded in the uh, in the space treaty. The Outer Space Treaty says that uh, no. Uh, no state or an agent of a state, which is to say a company, uh, can own a planetary body. And that's so. That, and no one's saying that that's going to happen, right? No one's going to stake a claim to Mars or the moon. Although you could argue implicit in putting a flag on the moon is we now own it. But that was that's not the case, right? Legally speaking, we don't own the moon. Nobody does. And nobody owns the asteroids. Pieces from an asteroid, pieces from the moon, that's a different story. So I think there's some wiggle room there that uh, makes the U.S. law consistent with these treaties. And I wouldn't say that the U.S. is trying to own space. So I think that's a misunderstanding we want to be sure to correct. Sure. Um, yeah, and getting into that, you know, um, when you look back at NASA history and you look at the origins of NASA, you see these very aspirational speeches from Kennedy and um, the very fact that Eisenhower was, you know, used the Sputnik crisis to really create this um, uh, boom in American education, science education, everything. So there's NASA has these extraordinary roots of being able to do what it did in 10 years. And um, and I think that there's a public conception that some of that political will has been dis has kind of petered out. I, first of all, do you think that's even fair to to say that, that, that there's a difference between the Apollo age and what we're doing now? There are lots of differences. Um, one thing I would say, I, I know there is this belief that there's less public enthusiasm for mm -hmm. space than there was once. I think it's changed its character. Uh, among other things, I'm just speculating here, I think that the prevalence of science fiction movies and books and, and games uh, makes it seem easy to go to space. The downside of that is that maybe people don't quite get as excited as they should when we discover something like a new planet because, oh, we've seen new planets in science fiction. Uh, that's not surprising to us. Okay. But uh, that's... The good side, <laughs> I guess, of uh, of a maybe um, a public uh, embrace of space technology in popular culture is that uh, they're not going to let it go. If we fail to deliver on things like humans going to the moon uh, to return to the moon, uh, if we fail to deliver on commercialization of space, if we can't present people with the future that they've been promised through movies and, and uh, TV and games, uh, they'll feel that down. 
So there's an expectation now, and it may not seem like enthusiasm, but it's more of an expectation mm -hmm. that uh, we as a species will be an interplanetary species in the near future. They expect it. Uh, so I think that there's enough enthusiasm uh, in the public to motivate continued support of NASA. In fact, NASA is one of those few government agencies that pretty much gets universal public support. Mm -hmm. Unless you're just generally not in favor of anyone paying any taxes ever, uh, that is one of the things that seem, people seem to be able to get behind. It really does good. And for the most part, it's an apolitical thing. You know, NASA, internal to NASA, I can tell you, certainly people have their own uh, political beliefs, but they tend not to manifest themselves in how we do space. There's a little bit of a thread of politicization in that uh, some administrations seem willing to uh, support earth science and some administrations aren't. And the administrations that aren't tend to put that money towards other things at NASA because God forbid you should actually cut NASA. But for whatever reason, whatever political reason, they don't want to support earth science. Uh, okay. They tend to move that toward, let's say, human space or something else. But we have never seen a wholesale rejection of of NASA from any single party, um, and generally for the public. I think that's true. So uh, I'm, I'm actually excited for the future of NASA. I think it has a lot of congressional support and a lot of uh, public support. Yeah, you're right that it's certainly the rare agency that seems to really generate a lot of goodwill. Yeah, no one really rallies around the IRS the same way, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you touched on this a little bit in that previous answer, but one thing that I've noticed just in the little bit that I've reported on NASA in space is that uh, you know a lot of these projects are very long lead time. Um, if you talk about going to Mars or even going to an asteroid or, or going to the moon, um, you know I think there's sort of universal support behind NASA, but like you mentioned, there's not necessarily agreement uh, between administrations or between parties or between politicians about uh, what NASA should prioritize. And when you're working with such long lead time projects, it, it's very difficult to say you know we're going to spend the next 20 years going to Mars when you have a presidential administration that can last at most eight years. So can you just talk a little bit about the challenges of um, you know, the continuity between uh, administrations, between directors, um, when you're trying to do some of these really big projects? And I guess, is there a better path forward, do you think? Is it something where you know, NASA gets dedicated funding that cannot be stripped away by uh, you know, political winds changing or something like that. I think it's very insightful. I think you're exactly right that the frequency with which we elect our public officials is not very well matched mm -hmm. to the uh, time frame for a lot of NASA missions or the, the very Im big impact stuff at least. And, you know, and without being overly cynical, I'll point out that politicians want to be seen as making a difference. They want to be seen as affecting change. And if you're only there for, let's say, two years, if you're a representative or maybe four or six, depending on what your role is in the government, uh, you would really like to see your changes happen during your tenure there. And I think the, there's a perception, at least, uh, maybe on the part of uh, members of Congress, that if they can't show progress uh, to their constituents, they're not going to get reelected, and maybe that's all true. Uh, so that's exactly an issue to, uh, to be addressed. There have been proposals in the past of how to change things. Uh, maybe some of them would work. For example, there was an effort to fund NASA on a decade-by-decade -decade basis mm -hmm. so that you would uh, have one 10-year uh, authorization and appropriation via Congress, uh, and that could probably be done in some way or another, uh, which would force Congress to be more or less hands-off and uh, whatever uh, administration, uh, presidential administration, to be more or less hands-off during that 10 years. It's not a bad idea, right, because then at least NASA knows for that 10 years it can focus on a set of priorities. Now, 20 years is asking a lot, right? That's really a generational level of uh, funding commitment, which seems unlikely from any administration. 
but again, what has happened in the past is, uh, you know, some members of Congress see this as removing some authority from them. And maybe constitutionally, that's, that's right. Maybe they should be given the opportunity to start and stop things at NASA. I think the problems arise when uh, pork gets attached to this kind of thing, mm. right? So some, uh, some representative from a particular state with a NASA center will advocate for a particular investment in technology, whatever that might be. I don't want to point fingers, but it does happen. Uh, and... <laughs> And then that's the way NASA goes because it, it helps that particular member of Congress. Uh, that, that's unfortunate when that happens. If we could get away from the, the pork aspect of NASA, that would be great. But, you know, the thing is that's, that's in NASA's DNA. That's why NASA's laid out the way it's laid out across the country. Hmm. The support that Kennedy needed to make NASA and, and the Apollo program specifically successful came from promises that you will get a certain amount of money in your state. Hmm. It's like promising military bases. It's the same kind of thing, guaranteeing government income for your state. And that solidified the support he needed and made it all possible. So it's very hard to move away from that. Even today, some 60 years after uh, NASA's founding, you still have this issue that people see NASA centers as a source of income and jobs for their state. It's not wrong, but in my opinion, it's not also the reason we have NASA. NASA is not uh, a welfare program. As important as something like welfare is, it's not, this is not that. This is something else. Uh, this is something about our aspirations for the future, you know, our place in the cosmos. This is not something that, in my opinion, we trade against a, a job in some uh, a specific district. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was well said. Uh, I, I, On that point, like, I, it would be great to kind of get into two of the big projects that are like the 21st century landmark NASA projects, the Space Launch System and um, the James Webb Space Telescope, which I think kind of represent what the public loves about NASA, the human space exploration aspect and the, the great astronomical mysteries that, that NASA can solve with um, things like James Webb. So um, I just wanted to start with James Webb since it's been in the news and it's a great example of what we were just talking about where NASA is doing these ambitious things and they get pushed back a lot of the time. James Webb just got pushed back uh, for launch to 2021. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, you know, what what's this uh, space telescope going to to do that's that's beyond what Hubble has done? Um, what what kind of new boundaries is it going to uh, bring us to? Roughly two chief things. Uh, James Webb, it's called JWST. Okay, so JWST uh, focuses more in the infrared part of the spectrum. Of course, you understand the spectrum is mm -hmm. uh, wide, right? We're talking about the visible spectrum where it goes from uh, ultraviolet, very high frequency stuff to very low frequency stuff, infrared, which is near heat. Now, by looking at the, the lower end, that sort of reddish end, the heat end, uh, what uh, JWST is able to do is look at phenomena that we really cannot see from Earth. We can't see the heat signatures from, from clusters of stars. We certainly can't see the heat signatures on planets if, if we are able to find some. This is new science that we haven't been able to do before. And it's doing so with an aperture, uh, a telescope size, that's five times the area of Hubble. Now remember that Hubble rewrote the textbooks, right? We now know things about the early history of the universe we couldn't have imagined before Hubble. And there's a variety of things uh, that we could go into in some detail. But uh, I think, and, and most people think, James Webb Space Telescope will do the same thing. We will mm -hmm. grow our understanding fivefold, just like the area of uh, James Webb is, is fivefold what uh, Hubble is. And, and that's no small thing. So we're going to discover stuff. Uh, the way that the, when these missions are successful, 
they combine a very specific set of science objective, things we want to look at, you know, globular clusters, let's say, or, or a large structure in the universe and things like this. This is important to find out. At the same time, we'll discover things we never thought we were going to discover. Uh, for Hubble, we did this study called the, the Hubble Deep Field, right, where we stared for a week at one spot. And it, was, it appeared empty. There's nothing there. But thanks to Hubble's extraordinary resolving power, we were able to make out little faint galaxies. And it's not just that they're small or distant. They're back in time. They're older in time. When you see light in a telescope, that light emanated from somewhere, and its origin uh, depends on uh, you know, how far away it is, right? That origin could also be in the past. Since light travels at a fixed speed, some of its four light years away uh, sends light at us that reaches us four years later. Well, if we're looking at objects that are hundreds of thousands of light years uh, away, that light came hundreds of thousands of years ago. Hubble was able to look back into the distant past. Um, JWST will be even better at that, maybe able to see close to the origins of the universe. And so what we'd be looking at are not just distant objects, they're old objects. And that'll tell us a lot more about how the universe was formed. So that's, that's also very exciting. So there's a lot we're going to learn from, uh, from JWST, but it's not clear that uh, what we plan to learn will be all that we'll learn. Mm -hmm. I hope that we'll learn a lot more. Just like, yeah, I uh, want to jump in there real quick just because I think there is, we're talking about the legacy of NASA and, um, you know, there is obviously a whole generation of people who grew up, um, you know, on the lunar programs, the Apollo programs, um, you know, that inspired the country. Um, you know, I grew up in the early 90s and I also grew up near Greenbelt, um, which is where Goddard Space Flight Center is, which is where uh, Hubble was designed. And I remember being, you know, in elementary school and seeing just these incredible photos of not only our solar system, but also, you know, nebulas and, and very far off, uh, you know, I don't even know what you'd call them at the moment, but um, <laughs> I just remember seeing these things as a kid. And that was far more exciting to me than even seeing humans go into space. And I think, um, you know, we talk about the importance of having, you know, NASA inspire people. And I think that the images that we've gotten from Hubble have been so important for that. And we've also started to sort of maybe take them for granted just because it's been around for so long. So I'm curious, do you think that once JWST is launched, we'll see, you know, a similar sort of um, leap forward in the types of just images that we're getting um, for, you know, not only the scientists who want to study this sort of thing, but, you know, materials, videos, uh, photos that we can show like young people? Well, I hope so. Uh, what's going to be interesting is what we learned from Hubble was in part thanks to its, again, extraordinary resolving power. We were able to see farther, deeper, uh, farther in the past than we ever had seen before. And you know, those beautiful pictures you've seen, you know, things like the Horsehead Nebula or the Crab Nebula, these very famous Hubble pictures, um, they are awe-inspiring. I don't know what to expect, to be frank, from JWST, whether we will have that same step change in, our, uh, in the availability of incredible images they might look kind of similar to things we've already seen from Hubble. So at a, a kind of low level, a kind of, let's say, elementary school level, it might not look that different to people. Uh, on the other hand, what we learn will be very different. Uh, so uh, it's, hard, it's hard to know. The, so the impact of, of Hubble was extraordinary. For me personally, you, you mentioned your own experience with, with space. For me personally, it was I was in sixth grade, and the Voyager mission had just sent back mm -hmm. these uh, beautiful images of Saturn. Uh, the false color images that were printed in National Geographic, I carried that magazine around with me. They were just gorgeous and, and awe-inspiring. 
I think it's it's easy to think that students uh, or young people in particular are motivated by uh, by human space because you, you think that well as a human I uh, imagine myself as an astronaut so I could put myself in their shoes and see how and imagine myself having that amazing experience and certainly some people are motivated by that but so many of us are also just motivated by the science and even if we're not scientists I don't count myself as a scientist but I appreciate it uh, I'm I'm awestruck by some of the things we can discover. Let's not forget that one of the things on the horizon that we could be discovering more about are extrasolar planets. Um, JWST might tell us something about extrasolar planets, but there's other spacecraft out there like WFIRST that if that's not canceled, um, will tell us a lot about how these planets beyond our own solar system, uh, how they behave. You know, we've, we just discovered a planet not too far from us. The, the closest star to uh, ours is, uh, other than, of course, the sun, the uh, closest sun to our sun is called uh, Proxima Centauri. It's something like 4.3 light years away, so ver fairly close. Uh, and it turns out there's a planet orbiting Proxima. And it's not just a planet, not just a lump of stuff. It's actually in what's called the habitable zone. So it's within that narrow range, that narrow band, where the temperature is about right to support life. So it's fascinating that there's a planet as close as a planet could be around another star very close to us. And it's the sort of thing that, in principle, we could be looking at uh, when NASA, if NASA, uh, gets the kind of funding necessary to make something like WFIRST possible. So a bit, a bit of a tangent there, but I just wanted to comment that there's so much more to be learned. And I think it can very much excite people, just like astronaut uh, work can, just like the pictures of Hubble can. Uh, there's much more to discover. When it comes to exoplanets, what could JWST and uh, WFIRST do in terms of uh, adding to our to our uh, knowledge of it? How much more resolution or information could we get from those telescopes? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Those telescopes aren't exactly built for that purpose, but for WFIRST in particular, the plan has been to put a coronagraph on that. And a coronagraph is an instrument that's able to block out the light from the stars so that you can get some photons reflected off of the planets that are orbiting the star. It's kind of a subtle problem. So you would think that we just have to have a big telescope to look at a distant planet. We do need that, but we also need to block out the incredibly bright light from the star that's right next to it. I mean, don't, don't do this, but if you were to walk outside and look at the sun, you will never see stars or planets next to it because the sun itself is just way too bright. There's something like a factor of a billion or more difference in the amount of energy coming from uh, that, that sun versus the the brightness of it versus the brightness of the planets going around it. So you have to block it out somehow. It's a very subtle technology problem. And it's, by the way, wearing my technology hat, I would <laughs> say it's the, one of the reasons why we have to invest in technology at NASA. We can't just use the same old instruments, find off-the-shelf solutions for everything. If we had that technology, WFIRST could get some photons from extrasolar planets, which means we can, in fact, see something about the light from those planets. Probably we can also uh, do even better than the Kepler mission has done to understand their paths around their respective stars. So there's a lot that can be done. I'm excited about extrasolar planets. I don't know about you, but that's one of the <laughs> many things that are exciting, right? Oh, it's amazing to think that it's only been 20 years or so since that was even a uh, confirmed thing. So here, since we're at Cornell University at the moment, I'll uh, comment that a famous Cornellian, Frank Drake, came up with an equation years ago 
that tries to estimate how many intelligent species are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the answer is zero. Uh, some religions would say it's zero. Uh, if you take a more numerical approach to it, Frank Drake's Drake equation, other people named it, not him, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, stacks together a bunch of multiplicative factors, things like how likely is life to arise, how many stars have planets, what are the odds that a civilization doesn't blow itself up in nuclear war. You can sense by the kind of equation when it was developed, right, when uh, nuclear Armageddon was sort of on everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, one of the important terms there is how many stars have planets. We used to think it was kind of rare. We thought that maybe the solar system, our solar system, was uh, strange in having nine planets. Well, back in my day, there were nine. Then there's been budget cuts, and now Pluto is no longer <laughs> a planet. But anyway, there, there, are, um, there are these planets around our sun. We didn't know how many planets really are out there. That uh, Kepler itself, that one mission, has changed the result of the Drake equation uh, with in all things being equal, mm -hmm. we are now maybe 10 times more likely to encounter some other life out there, uh, just based on the numbers. It's really, really exciting stuff. Um, and to pivot then to like us becoming the life out there uh, with the Space Launch System and the Orion capsule right. in development, this is NASA's um, sort of next successor to the uh, shuttle and the, the Apollo, or the Saturn V before that, and it will be bigger than the Saturn V, or five rather. I, I always read it, and I always, I'm always i still trying to get used to saying five. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> but, Roman, that's fine. Mm -hmm, there you go. Um, so uh, so, so what, what is uh, Orion going to be for in terms of pushing humans even farther beyond low Earth, or, low Earth orbit, as you mentioned? Uh, is this going to be the, structure, the, the, the system that takes us to Mars and beyond? Well, Orion is central to NASA's plans for uh, human exploration for the future. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true. And let's be clear. So SLS, the Space Launch System, is a great big rocket, and Orion is the thing that rides on top of the rocket. That's the human capsule uh, capable of carrying four astronauts. Um, it's also got its own propulsion system that can propel it quite quickly. So in the very near term, uh, in, in human space terms at least, one of the roles of SLS will be to launch the Orion capsule for humans to go to the moon. Mm -hmm. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, there are those out there who would say, well, we had the Saturn V, and we had the Apollo Command Module and the Lunar Excursion Module. Didn't we do this already? Um, this is a very different story. You remember back in the in the 60s? Well, you don't remember the 60s. <laughs> I vaguely remember the 60s. We had almost none of the technology that made spaceflight possible. Even though, as you pointed out, in the decade, we went from basically nothing to humans on the moon, which I think motivated a lot of folks to expect that we'd be living on Jupiter in the next 10, 20 years. Um, even though that happened back then, it was probably just because the time was right for that to happen. There was an opportunity to infuse some technology. But we didn't have any of that stuff. And now things have advanced so far that 60 years on, uh, we have in incredible technologies that can make uh, this work so much better. Far better materials technologies, far better computational and communications technologies. Um, and our ability to design engineered systems is so much more advanced. We can create nearly what's called a digital twin, that is to say a, a computer model of a spaceflight system that really acts like the real system. So we can predict how it's going to behave with mm -hmm. far more accuracy. Back in the old days, you would build these stuff, these things with very simple curves, with uh, straightforward manufacturing processes, and you probably got a lot of stuff wrong, but you threw a lot of margin on there, a lot of sandbags, as they say, and and um, you know you you correct for your lack of ability to predict or understand just by putting a heck of a lot of metal into space. Well, we are much better at that now, so we are we have razor thin margins in some areas on these spacecraft, but that's okay because we can predict that cap that uh, capability. Uh, 
So this is thanks to basic research and applied research, uh, thanks to investments in technology. Uh, once again, if you don't invest in technology, you can't ever hope to get beyond the Apollo era. But we have been doing that, fortunately. Anyway, Orion and SLS are uh, the next steps for human exploration, certainly to the moon, uh, maybe beyond. There's the prospect of uh, going to an asteroid and bringing some material back. That was called the Asteroid Retrieval Mission or, or Redirect Mission. That seems to have fallen out of favor. But missions like that are possible if we have a capability like SLS. Uh, I will comment also, though, that there are other forces at work here. So uh, SpaceX, a company in California, is uh, has been building rockets for years, and they've been doing a great job of it. They have the Falcon Heavy, which just launched not, not long ago and demonstrated it was successful. Uh, eventually, they will have a capability that rivals SLS. And so an interesting question to ask is, what's the right mix of SLS and Falcon Heavy or something like it in the future? There are other companies, too, that are working on launch vehicles, including uh, Orbital ATK and uh, Blue Origin. Anyway, when we have these additional commercial capabilities, what's the right way to deploy them? Uh, maybe they're the right answer for space commerce. Uh, maybe they'll be the right answer for human space. So I don't think it's either or. There's a tendency to think that it's either the government or SpaceX, right, or, or that somehow we... Uh, we can't. We shouldn't do something uh, via the government if we can do it commercially. Mm. Uh, there are laws that say that NASA can't compete with the commercial sector. At the same time, there are reasons why SLS is the way it is, and they have to do with the expectations of human space. Uh, so the Falcon Heavy is not there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when it's available, though, I think it's only good. It just increases the throughput of people and uh, science into space. Yeah, totally. Um, so you think that perhaps uh, you know. NASA could again take that Pathfinder role and maybe SpaceX could be more of the commercial side and uh, space tourism side as opposed to um, the pure exploration and, and not necessarily immediately profitable you know, kind of paths that, that NASA is probably better for in terms of exploration. And that makes sense to me. Uh, another interesting uh, monkey wrench in this whole discussion is uh, Elon Musk, uh, CEO of SpaceX, uh, thinks of his company a little differently from how people normally think of commercial enterprises. Right. You know, they're, they're, a mission statement for a typical company might be something like maximize shareholder value. And uh, for him, it's, I'm going to settle Mars. <laughs> you know, the, he, he has some very audacious goals. And so he's maybe unique mm-hmm. in the history of how uh, space uh, commercialization or new space works. But I think it's wonderful that there are people out there thinking that far ahead. Mm-hmm. I would, honestly, no matter whether it's uh, a European Space Agency or NASA or SpaceX, or the Chinese National Space Agency that first settles Mars. I'm a little less concerned about that. Mm. I just want us to do it at some mm-hmm. point and do it soon. Totally. Um, I, I'm curious. I mean, we've talked a lot about inspiration here and motivation and sort of being a, um, you know, giving people something to look forward to and look at. And for so long, NASA has been that. And I, you know, I still find what NASA does to be very exciting. Um, but I do think that a new generation of people is looking to SpaceX and Elon Musk to fulfill sort of the same role that NASA did for a long time. Um, and I'm curious, uh, A, if you agree with that, and B, if you think it matters, if that if it, um, you know, is inherently uh, better or worse, that we're sort of looking toward a, a commercial company that is admittedly doing really incredible things and, and is moving very quickly um, to, to play that role uh, where NASA once did and, and may play again in the future. A key distinction, I think, is that uh, SpaceX as a private company does answer to shareholders, and there is a bottom line associated with its success or failure. Uh, NASA, you know, like it or not, is funded by 
the U.S. taxpayer. So it can take on risks, uh, financial risks and technical risks, that probably private industry wouldn't undertake, even SpaceX, which is a lot less risk-averse than uh, other space companies from the past. So it's important that there be something like NASA to take on those very difficult tasks. But there are other foundations that do these kinds of things, too. For example, uh, the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. You've mm. heard of these guys, right? Mm. So one of the, the breakthrough initiatives is the so-called Breakthrough Starshot Project, which is trying to put a probe around Proxima Centauri, that, uh, that star that's four or so light years away, and actually take pictures of that extrasolar planet. That's a really audacious goal, and maybe makes sense for a not-for-profit to do that kind of thing. But in the same vein, NASA is also not looking to make a profit. In fact, by law, NASA doesn't and can't profit from all of its space technology innovations over the years. You would think if it were possible for NASA to, let's say, license all of its inventions or patent things or, or make products and sell products, that that could go back into the space program. Uh, for instance, you think when you go to Kennedy Space Center or uh, Johnson Space Center that when you buy a T-shirt that's a little more expensive than you would like, that that is, goes to support the nation's space program. It does not. It goes to a private nice. company. So uh, there is a difference, I think, in how one undertakes space through a, a public endeavor and maybe a philanthropic endeavor versus how you do it through a private or for-profit endeavor. No one, uh, it's hard to know what happens in the future. Let's say Elon Musk, uh, and God forbid, should go under a bus someday, or he just decides he's going to focus on Tesla or on Hyperloop and, and abandon SpaceX. Who knows what might happen? And then some other CEO takes over. Maybe the first thing that CEO does is strips out the objective of, of uh, settling Mars from SpaceX's, SpaceX's uh, portfolio objectives. But that wouldn't happen the same way with NASA, right? Uh, NASA's there to serve... Uh, the public interest, not private interest. So I, uh, I think there will always be a role for a NASA, something like NASA. Whether it's the current incarnation, who knows? There have been proposals of maybe splitting up NASA or giving NASA a role like the FAA, where NASA regulates commercial spaceflight. And I'm not sure that any of those are the right answer, but uh, we always will need something that's public, that works on behalf of the public, uh, for goals that are simply not commercializable. Yeah. And that kind of uh, feeds into, too, uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about the future of the ISS, because of the International Space Station, because it is such an incredible thing to have had in, the, in low Earth orb orbit for, um, for nearly 20 years. And NASA has really been the leader of so much of the, um, the development and effort to, uh, to, to use it and to keep crews up there. Um, but, it, but after 2024, I, it's a little bit unclear what is going to happen to it? And so I just wanted to start by asking, is is there a set lifetime for it? When when is it too old? When does it have to be deorbited? Or can it just be continually like replaced with new modules? We could continue to fix ISS as long as we want, to be frank with you. And yeah. Certainly there's a lifetime with every aspect of any, any, any engineered system, right? Uh, the question is whether you throw good money after bad. Right? Is it the right answer to keep ISS going? Or would the resources that go to ISS, which are substantial, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, should they go to something else? And the decision right now is to create this lunar outpost, right? The notion that we would have something like a space station for lunar exploration. And it's very consistent with the idea that NASA might be ceding the low-Earth orbit mm. uh, exploration activities to private enterprise. It's, it's consistent with that idea. Now, having said that, ISS has been an extraordinary uh, success. Not only is it the most sophisticated and largest space system ever created, uh, with six astronauts continually up there doing amazing science, 
um, and also uh, physiology studies to make sure that humans can survive distant, uh, you know, long-duration spaceflight. But also it's had its own share of spinoffs. I have a whole list of spinoffs if you want to talk about those. The investment that we've made in the ISS has turned out to produce a lot of fantastic discoveries that we use right here on Earth every day. Uh, so whenever we do this, whenever we invest in technology, we get these kinds of outcomes. ISS particularly, I guess the plan is to uh, decommission it or something in 2024. Uh, if we take a look at the history of other space stations, other things have happened. Uh, you may remember MIR, the Russian space station. stands for Peace or World or something like that. Um, the, the MIR space station, the thought was that maybe a private company could privatize that. There was a company called MIR Corp that was focused on doing that. It's an interesting model, right? What can you do with that? Uh, there, are, there were lots of combination of political and legal troubles that prevented that ever from being successful. Um, at the same time, it was an early move towards something that might happen in the future. I don't know if there's a company out there that might choose to take over ISS and run it for whatever profit or tourism reasons uh, they can come up with. That would be kind of exciting. But there's, remember, a lot of technical expertise that went into building and maintaining ISS. It's not clear to me that uh, a private company could easily take that over. Uh, you'd have to have a lot of resources, and you'd have to have a lot of expertise. I'm sure NASA would be helpful. At the same time, uh, it might require hundreds, if not thousands, of, of people to do the job that NASA's been doing. And there's over $100 billion invested in that thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be careful about the so-called sunk cost fallacy. You know, mm. Since we spent that money, is it right that we should uh, throw it away in, f you know, in six years? Um, some people say no. During the Obama administration, the expectation was to take it out past 2027, maybe even longer. Uh, others would say, well, we have to spend this money on the right things. And we got a lot of use out of ISS. We've learned a lot from it. Maybe the right answer is to put something around the moon now. Mm -hmm. So I, I, in my opinion, the jury is out on that. Uh, there are those with very firm beliefs on this topic. But uh, it's true that we can't do them both. Mm -hmm. That's one of the subtleties with NASA, right? It's got some funding levels that to you and me look to be, you know, pun intended, astronomical. <laughs> right, we're talking about close to $20 billion a year. That's billion with a B. That's a lot of money for anybody anywhere. It's also less than half a percent of the national budget. So mm -hmm. when people start to get excited about NASA maybe representing a, a big uh, hole for money to throw into, uh, let's remember that this is on an annual basis, something like a month's profit for an oil company. Um, it's something like a few days of the Iraq war. I mean, there, there are, there's not that much, um, relatively speaking, that goes toward NASA. But for that $20 billion, uh, which is pretty much a fixed cost, no one has ever seriously proposed increasing that to the point where it could be a different kind of agency. For that amount of money, you get to do a couple of big things. You can have a program like the space shuttle and the space station, but you can't do much else in human space. If you want to do something else, like a big new, uh, say, uh, rocket like SLS or a big human capsule mm -hmm. or the lunar gateway, you got to get rid of something. So it's, you know, like uh, cleaning out your closet. Uh, every now and then you have to make that tough decision to throw away that nice shirt that you really enjoy to make room for a new one. And that may be what we're talking about here. In terms of a lunar outpost, would, do you think that that would be something that could uh, succeed the International Space Station and also remain international, or would that be something that NASA would be doing by itself? Would this need to also be a global project and continue that kind of collaborative experience in space? Well, if you look at the uh, very successful projects at NASA, and ISS is certainly one of them, um, the very successful projects have always been international collaborations. Mm. Uh, cause and effect is a little bit muddled here. You know, NASA also has a certain role in diplomacy. You know, as I said before, science, and particularly space science, that seems to bring people together. Well, 
we can use this uh, uh, NASA opportunity for other countries to collaborate with us uh, to help establish better diplomatic ties, uh, to help encourage knowledge transfer across country borders, and this is all good. Uh, I think that an international lunar gate would make a lot of sense. I think it's, again, better for the sake of international peace and prosperity. It would be a good thing to have. Uh, at the moment, we have you know, some conflicts with some countries, right? Uh, China being the main one. Uh, but they are very aggressively pursuing their own space program. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a perfect world, uh, we should be all be collaborating. Uh, but I'm fully aware that there are political and other problems that prevent that from happening. So uh, it'd be great to work toward that, though. Absolutely. You could take the, as an example the Soviet Union, right? The uh, Apollo-Soyuz mission in 1972, was My it? My favorite Apollo mission of all. It's beautiful. Have you been to the Smithsonian Museum and seen the actual yeah. mock-up of those things? Yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's extraordinary, right? you got the hanging over your head. You have the Apollo uh, and the Soyuz module uh, docking two completely different-looking spacecraft as if they were developed by two alien mm -hmm. species, and yet they docked perfectly together. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's very much uh, a metaphor for how the U.S. and now Russia uh, have been collaborating ever since. So uh, there's a good story to be told there about international collaboration. Uh, I would like to think that we could be, uh, take more of an embrace posture toward mm -hmm. the Chinese than a push-them-away posture. But I do understand that there are some political realities that make that almost impossible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in terms of, you, you mentioned all the amazing spinoffs uh, of the International Space Station, all the technologies that have been developed there and helped humans on Earth. What would, uh, it, I would actually love to hear a couple of your, your favorite ones, uh, or the ones that you think have had the most impact, and then what would be the sort of uh, speculative corollary of that in, in lunar orbit? What kind of new spinoffs could we get from that type of a station? Yeah, it's one of the tricky things about talking about spinoffs, because I can give you examples, and none of them really uh, were expected to be what they became after the fact. <laughs> right. uh, my favorite example from the distant past is baby food, so or infant formula. So it turns out during the Apollo era, we were looking into what kinds of compounds would be ideal for astronaut nutrition, and uh, scientists came up with some uh, particular kinds of lipids that turn out to enhance brain function, uh, particularly in newborns. And it's a huge deal. And now uh, about 95% of infant formula sold worldwide includes these particular compounds that came from astronaut food. Now, you would ask the sensible question, isn't there a cheaper way to develop better baby food than going to the moon? <laughs> Absolutely there is, but that's not the way it works. The way it works is you take on a really hard problem, and then these sparks of innovation fly. As, uh, let's see how far I can extend this metaphor as you strike the anvil of cleverness uh, in solving these problems. So this is, this is what's exciting about something like space exploration. Any hard problem we take on has these unintended consequences that are often very positive. For ISS, there's a lot of cool examples. There's exercise devices, for example. You know, one of the roles for ISS has been to ensure that we understand how human physiology responds to the space environment and to develop strategies for mitigating the damage that space causes. You've heard of bone loss, for example. Mm -hmm. There's an interocular pressure problem where astronauts develop poor vision over time as a result of their exposure to space. And there's a variety of other things, including cancer due to ex radiation exposure. So there's been a lot of studies of, of cancer and other um, uh, medical uh, issues that relate specifically to astronauts but turn out to benefit others. So there's a thing called the spiroflex resistance exercise device. Mm -hmm. You know, and there is no gravity in space, right? So it's very difficult to 
compress your body and force it into an exercise regime that helps keep the bone uh, remodeling process successful. And I don't want to go into the details there, but rather talk about it if you want. Anyway, this particular resistance exercise device had developed for ISS so that you could provide a, the kind of compressive loads necessary to keep your legs, your backbone, your arms, and everything else um, under the kinds of force that we experience on Earth, which encourages the bones to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. If you don't do this kind of thing and if you just let uh, uh, let yourself go in zero gravity, uh, your body rids itself of the unnecessary calcium associated with its bones, right? And you literally piss it away. Uh, if you were to, and this is kind of disgusting, but if you were to clean out the pipes, the plumbing in ISS, you'd find lots of calcium scale. And all that stuff is the bones of astronauts, wow. you know, all layering like, uh, like some kind of arteriosclerotic uh, layer all over the interior plumbing of the space station. So uh, there's a lot of calcium that's lost that way. But now, with this uh, resistance exercise device, um, this has been uh, it's suitable for microgravity, so you can now mitigate that problem. We no longer really have the problem of bone loss in space, which is cool. Um, and it's been commercialized by Schwinn and a couple of other companies uh, that allow uh, this to be used for osteoporosis and other kinds of treatments. So this is cool, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Other, other good examples. I have a whole list here. There's something called ZipNut, which is a fastener. It's a special device that you push rather than turn. And that sounds simple, uh, I guess, but in space, think about it. You can't really turn a screwdriver one way if you're uh, in, a, in a space environment without it's turning you the other way. <laughs> right, so it's kind of awkward. So, but if you can push the thing to seal it, uh, you, that makes it better. It also turns out to be much better for the kind of repetitive injuries that technicians encounter if they're screwing things in in a factory environment. So these are better suited to robotic assembly and also better suited to humans doing their, their job in a, in a technician kind of environment. And no one, again, no one would have thought to come up with this except for needing to take on the really difficult task of making it successful in space. So I sense I'm going on too long here with these topics, but we could keep going. There's so many uh, inventions that have come from space exploration that we don't even uh, think about. Uh, one more quick example. There's a, a company in Ohio. Uh, I'll think of the name in a second that uh, develops new materials, for example, for repairing race cars. Mm-hmm. So you're in your NASCAR, you crash along the side of the, uh, the racetrack, and then you go into the pit and you have to fix it somehow. Well, you can't really fix this thing with, uh, with I don't know what, Bondo or glue or, or fiberglass. It just takes too long. But they've developed a material for repairing the exterior of the space station, which you slap it on, and almost instantly it cures to a hard finish, and it's the same strength as normal composite materials. Mm. So it's very much a space-age material uh, that we can use for terrestrial applications. Now, maybe you don't care about race cars, but there's so many other possible applications for these kinds of things. And that's what's exciting because these kinds of developments, even though we're talking about multi-billion dollar space programs, they go to support small businesses and startups all around the nation. So uh, let's not forget that when we explore space, we definitely discover things. We also don't spend that money in space. We spend it right here on Earth. Yeah. It makes a difference for all of us. It does, and it's uh, it's it's just such cool technologies too to hear you know the the ways that they can be applied in such um, innovative ways here. Um, so just to to close off, you know, it's it's such a big landmark this 60 year uh, anniversary, and it's it's a great time for you know reflection on what NASA's biggest successes have been, what their what their failures have been, and how to apply those lessons for the next 60 years. So I just wanted to talk about what you think uh, the agency has learned and. Um, how how we should move forward. What should NASA be like in 2078, 60 years from now? I think it will remain important for us not to politicize NASA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish we could see a future in which we don't have uh, pork barrel politics driving how we spend NASA's 
uh, scant money, but that seems probably impossible mm. given the way that our government is set up. You know, the, to the extent that our elected representatives serve the needs of their constituencies, we're always going to have the, the pressure to direct dollars towards specific uh, states or, or districts or whatever. So there's probably no getting away from that. Nevertheless, if we can at least all agree that NASA's purpose is not simply to support Texas or Alabama or Florida or, or Maryland or Virginia, but instead, in fact, to serve the entire nation, if we can all agree that that's the case, maybe we can get away from too much squabbling about exactly how NASA does its job. Uh, NASA, like I said, we will always need a NASA. Uh, a great nation deserves a great space program, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and by the same, for the same reason that we started NASA, which is to say to ensure that uh, America remains the forefront of exploration and to some extent military stuff, but you know, NASA doesn't do military, um, I think we're always going to need what NASA brings. Uh, we were talking earlier about you know, awesome things that NASA has done. Uh, on my list of top awesome things that NASA has done, probably number one has to be humans on the moon. <laughs> All right. Uh, someday we'll also have women's on the moon, women on the moon. So you know, I guess I could say men on the moon, but really humans on the moon. Um, Hubble and the related astrophysics missions have to be a very close second. Um, ultimately, I am very interested in putting my own feet on some other planet someday. So I have to care about even the science, but also the human exploration of other planets, whether that's lunar exploration or Mars. Um, understanding how those planets work and whether we can survive there is an important story. Mm -hmm. We're finding out a lot about Mars, for example. First of all, it's much wetter than we expected. Mm -hmm. It's also a lot more dangerous than we expected. You know, there's a huge dust storm going on right now, which, is, which has blacked out the, um, the rover that's on there, the rovers that are on there right now. Uh, that would affect people there. Also, there are uh, horrible chemical oozes coming out of the uh, surface of Mars, which we'd like to stay away from if we possibly <laughs> yeah. can. But it's thanks to science that we know these things. So uh, another thing I would hope for, for for NASA for the future is that uh, we can continue to uh, simultaneously pursue scientific objectives and exploration objectives. They go hand in hand. What we learn about the cosmos and certainly what we learn about planetary surfaces uh, teaches us how we as humans can explore and even settle other planets someday. Uh, so they do go hand in hand. And also just the knowledge of science, to some extent, it's an end in itself. But let's not forget when we pursue science and we pursue exploration, we get those you know, financial spinoffs, the uh, economic spinoffs that helps everybody. I think it's a win-win-win. It's a win for the scientists. It's a win for the adventuresome folks out there. And it's a win for the people who want to make a buck. Uh, if we can keep NASA on that track, I think we'll, uh, we'll be satisfied with its performance. Well, it's really been a pleasure to discuss it with you. And I think we can all wish NASA a really happy 60th birthday and hope many, many more decades to come that it uh, continues to do its amazing work. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you both for being here. Um, this is Radio Motherboard. You can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever podcast app you use. Uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. And uh, I'm Jason Kevler here with Becky Ferreira and Mason Peck. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. 
Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Give them a gift they'll never forget, because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. Because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code GRATEFULAG23.